Hello, and welcome to episode 45. Episode 45 is going to be a little different than anything we've done thus far. Why? Well, for starters, it's just me, Blair. Carden's off doing Carden's stuff, and he's going to take a hiatus from the podcast for a little while. He needs to spend his time and energy doing other things. So we'll just keep rolling right along. So for today's podcast, kind of, a, kind of an interesting thing happened. Um, I'll tell you the story. The backstory is my wife was uh, looking for a particular photograph that we had, uh, and she couldn't find it. And it was an older photograph. And, you know, we're, we're still of the vintage of photo albums, right? Which don't seem to exist anymore. But um, we, you know, used to get your film developed and stick it in the album. And that's how you, that's how you kept it. You know, smartphones weren't a thing yet. So anyway, so she's looking for this one particular photo. And it led her to our basement. And we had a couple of boxes with old photo albums in them. And uh, indeed, she did find the photo after some digging around. But in the, in the course of that, she brought up some albums that I hadn't seen for, you know, years. And one of the photo albums was one of mine that was when I was a child. And so, of course, you know, I couldn't pass up the temptation to sit down and, and reminisce and look at these, these photos that I haven't, I haven't laid eyes on for probably 15, 20 years, you know. Because um, like a lot of photo albums, they just get put away and you, you just, you don't happen to get them out unless there's a reason. So I started looking through this photo album and I just, you know, there was just this period of time in my life. And it was from the time I was 10 years old till about 13 years old. And there was so much that went on in my life at that time. And it was an incredible time, you know, in, in my childhood. And I started to see these pictures from that particular time in my life. And it, it was just amazing. All these memories came just streaming back, you know, just rushing back about my life and the things I was doing at the time. So when I was about 10 years old, uh, we, had, we had recently moved from my hometown of Shoto to a small town in Montana called Cascade. My dad was a large animal veterinarian, and he had decided to sell his practice in Shoto and wanted to start a new practice about 45 to 50 miles away. So at the end of my third grade year, we packed up and we moved to this new town of Cascade and started, started new. And uh, we were in Cascade for roughly a year. And during that time, my family had bought another ranch and they were remodeling the house. And so we stayed in town until the house was done. Once that was completed, we moved out to a small town called Craig, Montana. Now, anybody that's been in Montana and fly fished or if you fly fish pretty much anywhere in the U.S., Craig, Montana has become a symbol and a, a, just a, a hallmark of blue ribbon trout fly fishing. The Missouri River kind of ambles through this, this, this valley in the Little Belt Mountains, and it's situated between Helena and Great Falls, Montana. I-15 goes right by it, so it was accessible. So it was about 25 miles from the little town of Cascade that I'd lived for just a short time. So we moved to this small, small town, and our ranch was about a mile from the town of Craig. And on our ranch, we had about a mile and a quarter of the Missouri River running on the property. So it was a beautiful place, and it was a, it was a great place to grow up. As a, as a young, you know, young man or, a, a, I guess, a kid, 
you know, who like the outdoors. I like to hunt and fish, um, that kind of thing. It was, it was really an incredible uh, place to grow up. And there were so many other things that happened during that time. And, and the photo albums really just, again, brought so much of this back that I hadn't thought about for so long. For instance, I, uh, when we came there, like I said, I'd been going to school in Cascade for one year. The plan was I was just going to then ride the school bus from my new town of Craig to Cascade. However, something came up. Uh, there was a state, there was a, excuse me, a county line, right? I was going from, I had moved out of the county. And so I was in a new county now. And up until eighth grade, they did not allow elementary students to ride the bus into, to cross county lines into the, the other towns. So that meant for the fifth and sixth grade years, I attended a one-room schoolhouse in Craig, Montana. And it was, when I say one-room schoolhouse, it was, you know, circa 1850 one-room schoolhouse. Now, there was other rooms per se in the building, but all classes were taught in one room. It was grades one through sixth, and there was about, I went Oh, two years, there was probably 12 kids the first year and 13 or 14 the second year. Uh, and that was between all the grades, first through sixth. So, you know, looking back now, I, I, I think it was an incredible experience. And I'm really, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to do it. At the time, there was a lot of tears. When I found out I could not attend Cascade and would be attending a one-room schoolhouse, I was pretty sad. Um, and why exactly? I don't know. You know, you're, you're 10, and you're, you're not really processing things as you probably should. But it seemed like a really, really big deal. And I had made friends in Cascade, and I really didn't know that many people at the Craig School. So, you know, I was a little intimidated, I guess. But I, nonetheless, and, and my parents would not, you know, weren't going to fight the busing across the, the county line. So I was going to attend the school. And, and again, looking back now, it was a great experience. You go to a one-room schoolhouse and you have one teacher and her name was Mrs. Dempsey. And she is teaching grades one through sixth. And, you know, you have 12, 13, 14, 15 kids in this room. And it was just amazing how well it all worked. You know, she was a master at what she did. She was more of a mother figure than a teacher, it seemed, after time. But she was just so good at what she did and made it look so effortless, you know, um, and, and just made everything just fit, you know, like a perfect puzzle. And she was just so wonderful. Um, and I, I just, you know, I have, have nothing but kind memories for that time that I spent with them. But, you know, People have asked me before when they've found out I went to a one-room schoolhouse, you know, what is that like? You know, what, what is that like? You know, you got 12 kids in your whole school. Well, it's, you know, it was, it was interesting. It was unique. Um, you, you know, you, you pretty much had to get along with everybody. You know, you couldn't really afford not to have, you know, or to have enemies in a school so small. You, you know, you wanted to get along with the other kids. You know, if you're, you're playing basketball or something, you, need, you needed everybody to play and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it, it was interesting in the dynamics of such a small school and the other kids. And, and being, you know, kind of an older kid, a fifth grader and a sixth grader out of, you know, first through sixth, 
um, there was a little bit of a leadership in in you know this role of kind of being a a you know an older student right and the younger ones you helped out. I remember helping the younger kids get their their snow gear on and their boots on, um, things like that. You know, uh, but it was it was a it was a really really unique experience and things like um, we put on we put on Christmas plays every year. And we would, and it was a really big deal. I remember it was just a big deal, you know, and they would have casting for the plays. And again, with only 10 to 12, you know, you were assured a part in the play. Um, and, you know, we, we would spend a lot of time. It was a big thing for the local community. Um, and there was probably 75 people in this little town at that time. It was a, you know, it was a very, very small, sleepy town uh, alongside the Missouri River and the mountains. So, so that was a, that was a big deal. And I remember, you know, we spent a lot of afternoons practicing our parts and, you know, you learn the songs, you do the lines and the play and all this stuff. And then there's a dress rehearsal and then the big night, you know, and it was, it was a really, really kind of cool experience. You know, the, the, the gym class we had, um, you know, we had a tiny little gym and when I say tiny, it was small. And there was basketball hoops in there. I don't think they were regulation. I don't think they were 10 feet. But, you know, we, we would do gym class and we'd play basketball and we'd play, you know, uh, what they called floor hockey, I guess. And, you know, things like that. Normal grade school stuff, right? And I remember pretty much uh, everybody had the same type of gym clothes. Back then it was the, you either had the blue or the red shorts with the single white striping on the sides. Either that or sometimes you just wore jeans. You didn't have to wear your shorts if you didn't want to. So, um, but it, you know, no, it, there was no Jordans. There was no, there was no, you know, Nike or Reebok or anything like that for clothes. So everybody pretty much just wore the, the same kind of stuff. And it was cool. You know, I mean, nobody, nobody had a problem with it. And, and a lot of times kids didn't have tennis shoes, so they just wore st their stocking feet, you know, and you, you ever try to play basketball in stocking feet? Well, it's, it's a little interesting. So um, there was really no competitive sports because there was, well, A, not enough kids to really have a team and B, no other really, there was really no other schools to compete with. So there, there was one other school that was about eight miles away. It was the town of Wolf Creek. And the school was the Wolf Creek Wolves. Okay, pretty original. So, and they were a little bit bigger school. I think they had maybe 20 to 25 kids. Um, so, you know, they were, they were, they were the bigger school between the two, but we really didn't do much with them, you know, considering they were not that far away. We would once in a while have an exhibition basketball game or something. And, and let me tell you, they were, they were ugly. Okay. Uh, you did not call for traveling, uh, double dribble, <laughs> anything there. It just was, it was pretty much a free for all, but, um, I do think we won. I think we did okay. But but other than that, it was it was a very um kind of an isolated, you know, instance where everything we did was contained in in that school. You know, we didn't we didn't have like I said, we didn't have uh, any interaction with other schools and the, the other than Wolf Creek, the nearest school was twenty five miles away, which was Cascade, the town that I had I had previously lived in. So, you know, you got used to kind of being on your own and being out there where we were. You know, and, and no cell phone, anything like that, of course. And you just kind of just, you just kind of lived your life out there. And it was, it was really interesting. 
Um, other than the one room schoolhouse, the the area there was, you know, and still is just just beautiful. And like I said, the the Missouri River kind of rolled through the valley, so there was duck hunting, there was deer hunting, and elk hunting, and fly fishing like you can't believe. And it was just a it was just an unbelievable place um, to grow up for those years. And I remember I you know growing up um, there, the, the probably my best friend that I had, especially from those those ten to thirteen year old years, was a yellow Labrador named Honker. Okay, so anybody that's hunted Canadian geese knows that their nickname is a honker. Okay, so hence hence his name, and and he was a duck and goose hunting dog. So what a, you know, what what a perfect name for him. So he was my very best friend, and we spent countless hours on the river together, uh, fishing and hunting and just exploring, you know, catching crawdads and just just playing and, and doing things that a kid and his dog will do. And I just have so many memories of, of that time that we spent and, and how awesome it was. And, and one thing, and this is, I think this is hard to convey, but it's true, is even as a kid, even as a kid in the moment, I realized how lucky I was. And I actually used to think about that when I was young, of, of how lucky I was to be where I was when I was. And looking back now, I'm so glad I didn't take it for granted and I didn't really appreciate those opportunities I was having. You know, not knowing that A, most people don't get that opportunity and B, I would never have that kind of opportunity again. Not like that. So when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, um, I, I did appreciate those years in, in the place that I lived and the things that I would do. And, and I think back to all the experiences I had, and a couple stick out. Um, for example, there was, there was the, the three-legged deer, okay? So my dog Honker, and we had a little mutt, you know. Um, her, her name was Poochie, and I didn't name her. Uh, I think I think my mom did, but she was just a little mutt terrier, probably a Jack Russell mix something, and she was she was buddies with you know we were up the the three amigos right Honker and Poochie and me, so we would spend a lot of time out at the river, and I remember one particular time we were down there, and I was fishing, um, and there there was kind of this some rustling going on in in the brush in the tall grass along the river. And my dogs went over to kind of investigate. And all of a sudden, this deer burst out of the grass towards the river. Well, it, it was, you know, we were used to seeing deer. We had a lot of white-tailed deer that lived around there, so that was nothing unusual. However, this deer was missing a front leg. So apparently, probably, a hunter had, had shot the deer and not killed it. And its front shoulder, the, the leg had come off or was shot off or something, but it was missing from its right shoulder down. There was no leg. And it hadn't just happened. It looked like it was scarring over. It was, you know, it, you could still see it was a wound, but it, it, it didn't look fresh by any means. And this was in the summer. Um, so it was probably a few months old. But the deer came out of the brush and ran down to the water edge and it stopped. The dogs had scared it up, and of course, and it wasn't very far from me, maybe 20 feet. And I just stood there, and I, I, I waited for the deer to make its decision on what it was going to do. 
and the dogs kind of came out. They weren't really chasing the deer because they weren't those types of dogs, but they, they were curious to see what was going on, so they come out of the grass. And I remember calling to the dogs to get them by me so they didn't scare the deer. And when I called to the dogs, that scared the deer. So the deer jumps into the river, and it starts to kind of wade out a little bit. It's really off balance, and it falls over. Well, uh, as it's laying there, it starts to drown. It, it can't get up. It's, you know, with, with only three legs. So I, without even really thinking, I dropped my pole. I was in my jeans. I wasn't, I wasn't wearing waders or anything, and I, I dropped my pole. I ran and waded into the river and, and cradled the deer, its neck and its head, and I figured, you know, um, either we're, we're both going to get out of here or we're both going to drown. So the current, it wasn't really high. Um, it was probably a little over my knees, right? So a couple feet deep. Um, but it was tough. And this deer is trying to keep its head above and it starts to thrash. And I got my, my hands under its neck and its head, holding its head above water. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do this. And so I finally just let go of the head and I grabbed the one front leg and I just start pulling on it back to shore. And it wasn't very, it was only probably 15 feet in the river, so it wasn't that far. So I get the deer back to shore. I drag it up on the bank and it just kind of laid there. It didn't really fight me or anything. And I back off and I get the dogs and, and we start walking away. And I got quite a ways away and just kind of letting it, you know, regain its composure a little bit. So I remember the deer laid there for just a little bit, you know, maybe a couple minutes. And then it got to its feet and it looked at me and we're, you know, like I said, we're kind of backing away, trying to, to give it space. And immediately it turned around and ran right back into the river again. And of course I'm just, you know, oh my God, what, you know, what is this deer, you know, trying to do this time though, it didn't fall over and it just started to swim. And, uh, and it, it got out into the river where it was over its head and it could swim. You know, it was buoyant. And so I just got to the river's edge and I watched it. And it made it across to the river, uh, to the other side. And it got up and it walked a few feet and then it just collapsed. And it laid there. And I remember thinking at the time that he's just, you know, obviously exhausted. He was going to recuperate and uh, he'd, he'd be okay. You know, I felt relieved he made it to the other side. And so, you know, there was really not much sense in fishing anymore. So I collected my pole and got the dogs and off we went, you know, looking back and the deer was still laying there. So um, it was quite a story. I remember telling my mom and dad about it. And all night long, of course, that's all I thought about was that deer. So the next morning I get up and it was early and I went down to the river and I stood on the riverbank and I could look across and I could see the, the, the deer laying there still. So I had no, you know, I knew that it had died during the night and uh, it, you know, hadn't made it, unfortunately. So, um, and I remember being really, you know, I was sad. Of course, you know, I was 10 years old, but I felt really guilty. And I felt like, gosh, you know, if I hadn't been down there and you just, you know, you kind of replay the whole thing. And like I said, I, I didn't like death really, um, you know, and it, it just, it just made me feel really bad. And I just, I remember, you know, it just kind of bummed me out for probably a few days. And I, I, I just distinctly remember the, the feeling of guilt about that, you know. Um, but, but in that environment, 
in the hunting and fishing and things like that, you know, you, you were exposed to a lot of really interesting, you know, different scenarios with, with animals and wildlife and stuff. I remember one time there was a coyote that befriended my, my dog, my Labrador, and the, the coyote would wait until my mom would go on a walk with the dogs and then it would run down and would want to play with the Labrador. And this was in front of people. I mean, you know, I would be there, my mom would be there, and this dog or this coyote would come down. And it wasn't aggressive. It, it actually wanted to play. And it would play. And Labradors are pretty easygoing dogs, you know. And so they they just kind of go along with it, you know, not knowing really what's going on. So, And then let's, uh, let's not forget the time that uh, Honker and Poochie and I got sprayed by a large skunk. So, yeah, so, so uh, I thought it would be a good idea to trap a, uh, a rather large skunk in a rather short piece of irrigation pipe. Um, yeah, I didn't really, didn't really think that through. So tipped this pipe up, saw, saw the skunk get into the pipe. Um, I tipped the pipe up, so now I've got the skunk trapped in the pipe. And I'm not exactly sure what I thought I was going to do with the skunk, but... I remember thinking, well, okay, I'm going to have to lower the pipe again because I can't pick it up. And, you know, skunks sometimes were known to have rabies. So as I'm sitting here next to this pipe, you know, with the skunk in it, I'm, I'm, I'm going through my options on exactly how I'm going to deal with this. So what I decided to do was drop the pipe end, and I went to the far end thinking the skunk would come out on the end that was on, you know, had been on the ground. I thought I, he probably fell to that end and he was going to be coming out. So I did exactly what I said. I dropped the pipe. I ran to the long end of the pipe and I stood to see the skunk come out at the opposite end. But that's not what he did. He backed ass out towards me. And as soon as his ass cleared out of the pipe, he let us have it. So I don't know if anybody's ever been sprayed by a skunk before, but you know, on Bugs Bunny, it, it was kind of this green fog. Okay. In reality, it's not, it, it is, it is actually like mucus and it's bloody colored and it's disgusting. Okay. And it shoots out with a lot of velocity. Um, and you, you, it was like a giant, and it was everywhere. And I remember I didn't get it in my eyes, thankfully, but my dogs did. And they were, they were squealing and rolling around and rubbing their eyes because I guess it, it burns. And I just started gagging because it didn't smell like a skunk smell. It smelled putrid. It smelled rotten. And of course, I'm running now because I don't know where the skunk's at because I don't want to look and I'm gagging. And the, the dogs are distracted because they can't see anything. And uh, so, yeah, went and got on my bike, uh, rode home. And my mom happened to be home that day. And I walk in the house. And, of course, yeah, I, I reeked terribly. And she yells at me to get outside and to get all my clothes off. And, uh, and I did. And about that time, it was later afternoon, about that time my dad pulls up. And he sees me standing in my underwear outside in the yard with my clothes around me. He asked what had happened, and I, I kind of told him. Um, and I, I spent the next hour in the shower with a suave. I'll never for, forget this. Suave green apple shampoo. Scrubbing over and over and over 
and over, trying to get the smell out of my hair and off my skin. And <laughs> after that, I come out and uh, my, my mom and dad were there. And I got a little lecture and it was off to bed, you know, smelling a bit like putrid green apple shampoo. So another, another big part of my life at that time was my, my summer jobs, okay? So like I said, when I, when I moved out there, I was 10. And my first official summer job I got when I was 10 years old. And it was raking hay for a local rancher. So for people that don't know what raking hay is, uh, when you cut hay in the summer to make you know bales of hay, you have these windrows, they're called, which is just the swath of hay that's laying in the field to dry. And what a lot of guys would do is to get it to dry quicker, they would take a hay rake behind a tractor and it would flip that windrow of hay, that row of hay, to the other side to make it cure faster, dry faster. Um, and raking hay was a very slow, just monotonous, you know, you're driving about four to five miles an hour and you had to turn every row of hay back and forth and back and forth. And some of the fields were really large, you know, a hundred plus acres in a, in a field or, or actually much bigger. So it was a, um, it was a long day. Uh, and it didn't pay very much. I don't remember exactly what my wage was. I just remember even at age 10, I was pretty disappointed with, with how much I, I made doing that. But it did teach me a very valuable lesson, even at age 10, um, the value of money and the independence that money gives you, you know? So I started to realize you have money, you get to buy what you want to buy, right? Um, whereas if you rely on your parents, you get to buy what they want you to buy. So this, this newfound freedom was pretty cool. And I, I was a pretty good saver for that first summer. I remember I was, I was really kind of miserly with my money and I wanted to save it up. And I think I did a pretty good job. The next summer, okay, now I was 11, um, I took a big jump in the job situation. I was now no longer working for a local rancher. It was a much, much bigger ranch, and it was about eight miles away. So again, I was going to be haying for them and spraying weeds. You know, Usually you'd spray weeds and fence in the spring until the hay was ready to be cut, and then you would start the haying operation and you do that throughout the summer. So, you know, an 11 year old kid working on this ranch, it, it, <laughs> that was a very interesting experience or there was many experiences to, to look back on. But, you know, the, just from the very get go, um, it was, it was kind of this unbelievable, you know, kind of situation. For example, I was 11 uh, I bought my first motorcycle with the money I'd saved from the prior summer. I bought a motorcycle because my dad said that he wasn't going to be able to take me to work every morning and pick me up. And like I said, the, the ranch was about eight miles from our ranch. So I bought a motorcycle from one of my dad's friends, and it was a, it was a Honda Trials 125. Okay, And so I would ride this bike. I would get up at 6 in the morning, have breakfast by 6.30, I was on the motorcycle and there was a dirt road that I would, I would ride for probably seven out of the eight miles. And then there was a highway that I would jump on in the last mile. 
I would, I would drive on pavement. And I would do that every day, five to six days a week. And I think back and I'm like, okay, nowadays, how many people would let their 11-year-old ride a dirt bike eight miles in the morning and come home a lot of times at night, you know, in the dark, uh, every day? And I, I'm, I don't think I'd let my kids do it. Um, but you know what? I lived. I, 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 I had some close calls. I about hit an elk on the, on the road one time in the early morning, it was, it was just getting light and I'm probably going faster than I should have, I should have been going on a dirt road. And I about broadsided an elk crossing the road. So, I mean, that, that was kind of an interesting thing, but, but this whole, this whole thing about an 11 year old working on a, an actual working ranch with a bunch of, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22 year old guys, was really interesting, and it made it made for it made for some interesting interesting experiences. So, for starters, the name of the ranch was the Dearborn Ranch, and it's still around. Um, and it's an extremely large ranch, you know, probably in the neighborhood of fifty to sixty thousand acres. Um, they they ran well over fifteen hundred cattle, um, and it was a it was a, vi- a big operation. It required a lot of guys to to help out, especially in the summer. So what I was hired for as an 11 year old was I was put on the haying crew. And like I said earlier, and before the haying started, there was all sorts of, you know, kind of menial labor jobs to do. You were fencing, you were um, spraying weeds, you know, just anything you could do to keep busy until the haying started. So there was, there was kind of this unusual cast of characters there. You had guys that were kind of lifelong ranch hands, and they just bounced around from one ranch to the other. You had college kids that were just off in the call, you know, from, from college making some money in the summer. And then you had, you had these older guys that uh, just either were kind of semi-retired and just wanted something to do. And usually they were like a mechanic or, you know, they'd come in and, and run a swath or something. And, you know, they were just helping out. And, uh, but they were older. And so it was an interesting kind of cast of characters. And, and I was really atypical. Usually you didn't have, you know, somebody 11 years old working on these ranches. But my dad, being a large animal veterinarian, was friends with the owner. And he kind of, you know, quote unquote, pulled some strings to get me out there. And I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, actually, looking back. But nonetheless, he was the, the kind of dad who didn't want me sitting around all summer, you know, goofing off. Um, so it was, it, was, it was to work I went. So, um, and, and, you know, the, the type of work we do, you're, you're driving a tractor all day, and it's, it's not really hard work. Um, long days, it was hot. There was no cabs. Um, I remember there was a lot of rattlesnakes and you were always, that was kind of all this, this excitement during the day when you, you, you caught a rattlesnake or, or whatever, you know, and, and that, that offered some kind of, uh, some levity and fun once in a while. Um, but generally it was just, it was just a lot of work and, and my wages weren't really good either. Um, I remember one month, my check was $375 and the, and they were, they were long days and we often worked five or six days. Five days was staple. And during Hain, sometimes you'd work six or even a seventh day if they really needed you. Um, so you were putting in a lot of time. And the, the, you know, I guess the things I look back now is I learned a lot of things out there, such as um, first cigarette I ever smoked. I, I had with these guys at the bunkhouse. They thought it'd be funny if they had me smoke a cigarette. Um, playboys, 
you know, ample supply of, of Playboys and penthouse, whatever. Um, you, you know, you, you didn't have to go far to, uh, to find some of that material. Um, and actually there was a short stint where I actually lived in the bunkhouse. Now it wasn't my first year. I think it was my second or maybe my third year there. So I might've been 13, 12 or 13. Um, and I thought, you know, this is kind of crazy. Instead of driving back and forth, you know, on this, on this gravel road every day, why don't I just stay in the bunkhouse with the other guys? So they agreed to let me try it. Um, and I, again, would you let your 12-year-old stay at a bunkhouse with a bunch of, you know, ruffian, you know, cowboys and stuff? Mm, probably not, but mine did. So I was there. It wasn't very long. It maybe was a couple weeks. And uh, like I said, I, I learned about cigarettes. And apparently I picked up some other bad habits because the cook... His name was Jim, and he was a he was a World War II Navy veteran, and he had the stereotypical tattoos on his forearms of the anchors and the sexy woman hanging off the anchor. I mean, it was just it was right out of a you know just almost a cartoon, and and he was kind of this old gruff, very gruff actually, um, pot bellied guy, and had still had jet black hair, and it was slicked back with some sort of a hair product. I'm not sure what he used, but. It was very effective. So, so Jim was the grumpy cook. And I remember specifically the reason uh, I was told that I couldn't stay at the bunkhouse one day um, was I was, came in for lunch and we're all sitting around and I thought I'd be funny. And I yelled at Jim. I said, hey, Jim, where's the goddamn milk? <laughs> and Jim looked at me and, uh, well, I didn't eat lunch that day. And then I was informed by the foreman that I was to get my stuff and I was, I was to move back home. Because in Jim's opinion, I was becoming a rude little asshole. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that did it for that. So that was my experience living in the bunkhouse with, with those guys. Um, but, but again, I mean, what an experience. And I, I think about the, the people that I worked with. There was a, there was a guy there. He was, a, he was a Vietnam vet, and his name was Ichabod. And they called him Ichabod from the story of uh, the Headless Horseman, Ichabod Crane, because Ichabod Crane was this very tall, very skinny, kind of gangly-looking guy. And, and that was exactly what Ichabod, the ranch hand, looked like. And he was a little peculiar, and he had some jitters, um, at the, at the time as a kid, I didn't understand, you know, what he had been through, but he was a, he was an M60 gunner in Vietnam and had been through apparently some, some pretty horrendous stuff. Um, and as a kid, I didn't know any of that. And I didn't, you know, he just, he was this kind of, you know, loose cannon, you know, wild card guy. So, and I remember one time this guy that was a little older with me that drove, he convinced me we should try to kidnap Ichabod's dog, you know, just for fun. Um, but Ichabod really liked that dog. And so Ichabod had stopped in his pickup and he left his door open and his dog's name was Tick or Ticker. And Ticker was on the seat and this, this kid says, hey, go grab Tick and bring him back to our, our car and we'll take off with him, you know. And I thought, okay. So I ran out and I started to grab Ticker out of the truck, and he didn't like it, so he started kind of biting at me. And about this time, Ichabod turned around and saw 
you know, this guy grabbing his dog, you know, and I, <laughs> I grabbed Tick until he bit me on the arm and I let him go and I just turned around and ran to the car, jumped back in the car. Ichabod, without even thinking, goes to his truck. He didn't know who it was. He just saw somebody doing this. We start pulling off. I look back. Ichabod's got a gun pointed at our car as we drive away. And I'm like, okay. And I looked at the other guy and I said, you know, you almost got us, <laughs> you almost got us killed. All right. Uh, don't mess with Ichabod's dog. So in, in thinking about, you know, telling these stories and thinking back to other memories, I, I can't help but compare my childhood to that of my own kids's, you know, my own children's childhood, how I was raised compared to how I raised them. And not necessarily better or worse, but just really different, you know, radically different. I think back to the expectations and the responsibilities I had as a, you know, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. And my kids really never had that, not, not to that degree at all. And I, I don't know that that's a bad thing. However, I think in retrospect that so much of what I've learned just came through just that very thing, just having been given responsibility at an early age. I guess as I critique my own parenting, I think, you know what, I'm, I'm guilty, as a lot of parents are, of probably giving too much and expecting too little. You know, this generation of, of kids coming up, they're, they're given a lot, you know, many of them, not, not all of them for sure. But uh, between, you know, the, the Jordan shoes and the cell phones and vehicles and things like that, you know, a, a lot of kids, I can't really say, earn what they get, my own kids included. And looking back in the, the stories I've shared and, the, you know, how I grew up, that really wasn't the case. We were provided for food, clothing, shelter, but the non-essentials, you know, drums, stereos, cars, that was up to me. And I didn't mind it. I, I really didn't. I, I actually kind of embraced it. Once, once you get over the, once you accept the reality that, you know, you're going to have to work and work isn't necessarily fun, but there is payout. And the payout really pretty much made it worthwhile. Well, okay. So episode 45 is in the books. Thanks so much for uh, joining me for a little trip down memory lane. I actually uh, had a lot of fun reminiscing about those times. As you can tell, it was a, it was a pretty special time and a pretty cool time in my life. So um, it's always fun to, to kind of reminisce about that. So I look forward to our next conversation and episode 46, Before You Know It. Until then, good night, everybody. <laughs>